the subject for today's uh, Dharma talk is the same as the title for the retreat, namely impermanence and stillness. So this uh, implies a counterpoint between the two. And um, let me start by talking about impermanence and then I'll refer to stillness. Yesterday I talked more extensively about impermanence, but uh, some of you were here yesterday, yes, but most of you were not. So I, I go over that ground, and uh, if you hear it again, sorry. <laughs> I'll just encapsulate aspects of the talk that are relevant today. In the talk yesterday, which was entitled The Three Characteristics of Existence, as the Buddha referred to impermanence, non-self, and suffering. In the language of the Buddha, anicca, anatta, dukkha. In a way, Impermanence is a gateway to all three. Impermanence means, of course, the impermanence of everything that surrounds us. And non-self refers specifically, focused on the problem of the impermanence, the mortality of self. And suffering follows from that follows from our stubborn, stubborn denial of impermanence. We, we obstinacy in insisting that this fleeting, fleetingness, this trans, transitoriness of things, of possessions, of relationships, of institutions, of ideologies even, whatever, and even ourselves, can be, can be turned into stability, permanence, durability, if we cling ferociously to these things. Like in a relationship, clinging ferociously to them other person. As you probably know, this is strategy is bound to fail. And over and over again, suffering is an inevitable consequence of that. So as I said before, this talk sets up a, uh, so much about impermanence. Now the talk sets up a, a counterpoint between impermanence and stillness. And in creating this counterpoint, I, we, have to be watchful 
that by setting stillness as a counterpoint, the flip side of impermanence, we're not once again advocating a strategy of denial. That doesn't work. Of withdrawal. I ah, will yeah, withdraw from all that's impermanent. Doesn't work. We, we cannot protect ourselves by building walls separating ourselves from impermanence and then staying still inside. This is a fiction. We cannot isolate ourselves from the flaw of change. And other things because we are in the center of that. <laughs> One of the most serious aspects of impermanence, of impermanence is our own mortality. Uh, yesterday I was talking about people who freeze the bodies in liquid nitrogen to cre cryogenically preserve themselves in the hope that somebody will find a cure for death. It doesn't work. No. And yet, the counterpoint is valid if we understand that the stillness is not to separate ourselves from change, but from going into it and at the very center of change finding what's known as the eye of the storm. You know, every storm, supposedly anyway, has a, a center where nothing moves, where nothing happens. So, where can we find the eye of the storm? Before we look for it, we, we must understand that although the storm may be external, the real important storm happens inside us. So, both the storm and the eye of the storm occur in our minds. And having been used to try to avoid the storm and stop the storm in ways that don't work, we need to go to the very center of it and find peace there. And this, because it's a non-habitual thing, requires that we shift our mind, that we transform our minds, that you make, we make a radical shift in the way our mind operates. That we stop building walls to separate ourselves from things, clinging to things in order to stop them from moving. We need to transform our minds. How do we do that? One key step in, in transforming the mind is to drop our compulsion to attribute separate existence to every item 
coming our way. We do that so often, so automatically, that we, we probably don't even know that we do it. In fact, it takes a while to realize that we do it. We could look into that. We, and we need to drop this relentless, what can I call it? I like to call it entification. Creating separate entities out of everything that comes along. The thingification, creating separate things out of everything that comes along, separate things. And perhaps a more common expression, although it's a little I mean, it's, a re it's, a, it's an expression in the dictionary. This others are not. I looked for them, I didn't find them. It's reification. To find, say, a word and attributing reality to that word. We do that so often. We don't even notice it, but we do it. Every concept, every image, what a thing, a separate thing. The Buddha was very, very aware of this as a problem. And he wrote a lot about the problem of what he called in his language Nama Rupa. Nama meaning name, and Rupa being form. That's a translation. We attribute separate existence to name and form. And he says, this is ridiculous. Yesterday, I used an illustration for this. And uh, those of you who were here yesterday, please bear with me if I repeat the illustration today. The illustration I use is right here, and I hope you can see it. it may, the light may help. It's a puzzle, a very famous uh, historical puzzle, over a hundred years old. the gate of the earth puzzle. Oh, wait a second, let me, let me correct that. Oops. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you can see clear, can you, can you see well enough? I mean, you don't have to see details. I'll, I'll go over and describe it. Also for, for whoever might be listening to this talk and then See, they, see, there's two boards. Actually, I should have made it larger, but uh, it gets complicated to carry it uh, some distance. So. Um, the one board is fixed. The other board has the ability to rotate. It's a rotary board, in this case representing the earth. 
but that's just a gimmick. Um, straddling the two boards, there are figures of Chinamen. Why they pick up Chinamen, that's another story, and we could talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Easily disposable, right? In the culture of the time, 1896, and even in the culture of today, sometimes. <laughs> Less so today. Okay, this, uh, this Chinaman. And if, let me count them with you, even if you don't see them well. There's one, two, three, four. Five, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Thirteen Chinamen. Fair enough. No problem there. But this puzzle can rotate and Basically, the rotation is like this. You rotate it one notch counterclockwise, and lo and behold, there's only 12. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve China. Where did the 13th Chinaman go? And in fact, which one went? It, it, it becomes a puzzle, but you know, it's a puzzle only because we insist in attributing separate existence to them. Because we reify, entify, each of the figures. Or in the words of the Buddha, we would give them, assign individuality to form of each one of them, rupa, and even give them names. Imagine if we try to give them names. Shift them. Which name is whose? <laughs> It's like musical chairs with 13 names and what, whatever. 12 names and 13 figures. Uh, it's so important to realize that there's nothing wrong with the Chinamen. What's wrong with our attributing them separate existence? It's gratuitous and necessary. This is reification. Of course, the Buddha didn't talk about this Chinaman. He had never seen that puzzle, but, but he talked very much in the same vein as I'm talking now. He said, for instance, why do we assign reality to chariots. Chariots, you know, those were the automobiles of his time. 
the loving item in, in the lives of Indians. There still are. There are still chariots running around India. But is this a chariot is just an assemblage of parts. And yet we attribute identity. And then, of course, he talked about ourselves. He says, we are also just an assembly of characteristics, what he called the aggregates. We are an aggregate of traits, of characteristics. And yet, we assign ourselves this very separate existence. And oh yes, this is this lovely poem that somebody emailed me not long ago by a poet I, I don't know, I didn't know, I, I only know this, Lissel Müller, and the title of the poem is Monet, the French Impressionist painter, Monet refuses the operation. Now, apparently, just to prepare it for the poem, uh, some doctor proposes to Monet that he gets operated so that he starts seeing things right as they are, not as he goes painting them, you know. But he refuses. He says, Doctor, you say there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age, an affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that the line I call the horizon does not exist and ski sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. It took, it took 54 years before I could see one cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun. And now you want to restore my youthful errors fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers? What can I say to convince you the houses of parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches. So that's uh, an 
an artistic point of view in this. And, and to continue a little bit with what art can do to reinterpret the universe, as Monet did in his time. Um, a few months ago, I don't know what's still on, but there was at the Metropolitan a show by Jasper Johns, called Gray, in fact. It's a very important show. And if you saw it, or if you go and see it, if it's still open, you, you notice that Jasper keeps reminding us of this inseparability of objects, of this self-blending of the world. And, and he does it in very subtle ways in his paintings, but occasionally he also does it very explicitly, and here's an explicit instance. I just, this is a segment of one of his paintings. I don't know whether you can see it. This image is, it, it looks very much like a vase, right? Uh, but if you look at it again, you may see two faces facing each other. And you can shift back and forth from these two things. The vase and the faces are, well, are transcendent. The image. In, in a so far-fetched wet way, like the Chinamen in the puzzle, the images are not separable. They're intertwined, and I'm convinced that Jasper Johns does that to encourage us to see his other paintings in this way, too. And as for us, that's what the practice does too. It does encourage us. Yes, of course, we do fix our attention. We focus on an object. But we also are encouraged as we focus focus on an object, to experience it appearing, arising, that is, and passing away. The breath arises, passes away, arises, and passes away. There is a discovery that the world is not just an assemblage of separate objects. That we come to realize that nothing is clingable to, and furthermore, that once we don't cling, once we let go, we can open up not just to the objects, 
not to deny the objects, but to the ground from where each object emerges. That's what happens when the quality of our awareness deepens and expands. We say we're listening to sounds. Fine, we're listening to sounds. It's a little difficult to do it in this room because there's a kind of constant sound. But even listening to this constant sound, it's possible, at least for me who've been practicing this quite a while, to go underneath that sound to the, call it the hum of silence. There's a hum of those machines here, and then underneath there's a hum of silence. We can be with a breath, or with whatever, with sensations. But there's a space between sensation and sensation. And we can open that up to that, incorporate that, that discover that. Discover that the world is not made up of isolated Chinamen or whatever. Visiting this ground is like tasting the stillness that exists in the eye of the storm. This, this may be a, a metaphor a little stretched, but uh, it's difficult to express this in, in words anyway, because all our words have to do with the art. We don't have much to say about what lies underneath. Do you know? Of course, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of talk about emptiness. But in our culture, emptiness is the pits. Who wants emptiness? You know, silence, we can tolerate silence, but not very well. It's a deadening silence, you know. Silence goes with death and with emptiness and ugh. But as we cultivate being with the ground where things emerge from, we we learn to visit this open space. Or, or perhaps I should say, we allow ourselves to be visited by it. Because this, again, cannot be done by chasing after anything. Start chasing after that, we construct the ground into one more object that we chase after. No, no, that's not it. We open up, we become perceptive, and we allow this to sometimes, sometimes, Visit. We're just present in the eye of the storm. We ask for nothing. We let objects come and go. 
we pay full attention to them. We let the Chinamen come and go. We, we don't ignore them. We don't pretend that this is not a strange cavorting of the Chinamen. It is. It feels like that. But we stay open to that. It's just what happens. And they cavort, but they're insubstantial. We know, we become, come to know that. And, and we go to a space of stillness, a space that defies description. You know, teachers sometimes have no, no choice but to say something, and this is what Ajahn Chan says about that space. It's flowing, yet still. It's still, yet it flows. In a way, saying words to, to really say I cannot say much. When we visit that space or are visited by that space, reactivity is gone. Chasing after is gone. Clinging or pushing away is gone. All gone of their own accord. It's not that we push them away or not from indifference. We have been, to use another metaphor, fascinated by the waves on the ocean. And then the time comes. But for us to let ourselves be engulfed by the waters of the deep. And we come to relate ourselves to a way, a world without precedent. We come to abide in a space that does defy description. A few months ago I did a retreat at a facility called the Forest Refuge, some of you may know about it, but it doesn't matter. Solitary, month-long retreat, and it was very powerful. And and I found myself uh, times, one or two times, throughout the month, in, in such a space, and it was quite powerful. What can I say about it? I can mostly say negative things about it. My coordinates of time and space were gone. Coordinates in age or in any narrative about myself, gone. Yet I was not at all spaced out, far from it. I was touched by a, a very intense vitality in my body-mind. That came visiting me. My heart felt like bursting, so intense. 
attached to nothing. Not even to the vibrancy of that experience that I let in and then I let out. And just left with the space to dwell in. That's as best as I can discover such an experience. And, and even then, you know, it's reconstructing, it's looking back. It's, uh, the authenticity is in being there, not in, in the words. In fact, I look for the words of others to help in this, and uh, yeah, they're there, but uh, it's. Uh, Let me see. This is what Ajahn um, Chah, um, a very significant teacher in the forest uh, traditional in Thailand, uh, who died in about 15 years ago. So I never met him, but that's what, something that he wrote and appeared somewhere. It's entitled, A Taste of Freedom. About this mind, he says, in truth it isn't really anything, it's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to do. It's simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated when moves, moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid, stupid. That's what he says. Fair enough. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself then we think that is who we are, upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful, just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaves leave flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we might 
must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. In other words, the aim is to discover stillness. And Ajahn Chan knows it very well, like any teacher worth his or her salt, that really these are things that we need to discover for ourselves. Here's a segment from what uh, Ajahn Chah again says about practice in, in the recent issue, of, uh, spring issue anyway, of Buddha Dharma. I'll just read a few segments of it. He says, practice with unflinching dedication. If you want to practice the Dharma, then please try not to think too much. If you are meditating and you find yourself trying to force specific results, it's better to stop. When your mind settles down to become peaceful and you think, this is it, this is it, isn't this it? Then stop. Take all your analytical and theoretical knowledge, wrap it up and store it away in a chest. And draw, don't drag it out for discussion or to teach. That's not the type of knowledge that penetrates inside. When the reality of something it's seen is not the same as the written descriptions. For example, we may write down the word sensual desire, expression, sensual desire. When sensual desire actually overwhelms the heart, it's impossible for the written word to convey the same meaning as the reality. It's the same with anger. We can write the letters on a blackboard, but when we're actually angry, the experience is not the same. This is an extremely important point. The theoretical teachings are accurate, but it's essential to bring them into our, our hearts. They must be internalized. If the Dharma isn't brought into the heart, is not truly known, is not actually seen. And further down he says, I can tell you a thing or two about meditation because I've done the work. But you know, maybe I'm wrong. Your job is to investigate and find out for yourself if what I say is true. And of course that applies for all I've said today and whenever. I say things to encourage you to explore. But the eventual answer can only be first-hand knowledge.
So let me just, uh, in closing, try to summarize a little bit what I've said. Which is that while the mind chases after this or that, we are caught in the box of conventional reality. <laughs> 13 Chinamen or whatever. And in the three characteristics of existence that easily overwhelm us. But when in full awareness of the three characteristics, yet chasing, chasing after nothing, avoiding nothing, we start to drop the trappings of our conditioning. Then it becomes possible to gain access to a place of stillness where direct knowing of things as they are is the norm. Surely the three characteristics including suffering, pain, continue to affect our lives. Yeah. But they not, do not weigh down on us. They don't burden our minds. It's not that the mind is resigned to that those things coming its way or ignores the impermanent non-self and unsatisfactoriness of suffering. But that our well-being, the mind's well-being, if you wish, does not hinge any longer in getting this or that outcome on the permanence or even the impermanence of this or that. The mind, when that happens, the mind has found a place that is unconstructed, that's vast and spacious. We not, no longer need to construct the mock version of reality to satisfy the urgings of the eye on a bogus search for peace. We have found peace. We have shaken off the clutches of I, me, mine. And we are free. So let's see for sit for a few minutes together in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.